Welcome again to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip and Robert, and we're going to be hitting a topic that we talked about um, our last episode, which is LBJ versus Nixon in their responses to the war in Vietnam. So be- before we begin, I'd like to go off uh, scripted a little bit with a reminisce uh, from 1968, April 4th, 1968. 50 years ago today, the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. At the time, I was a sophomore in high school, going to the uh, Nuremberg American High School, located at the uh, Kalp Kasern in Fert, Germany. And uh, another boy and I, a boy named John Kaminsky, were... Uh, delegated to putting up the flag in the morning. And we would get up every morning at 6.30. We lived in a, in a, in a high school dormitory, uh, get ourselves out of, the, out of the building and run the flag up the flagpole. And we were required, the rest of the boys were required to stay in the dorm until 7. But this particular morning, two boys came up to us, uh, uh, two friends of ours, Lenny Baltimore and Donnie, Donnie Walker, and both African-American boys, and they asked us respectfully, not as a black power demonstration. Uh, we didn't use the term then, but the, the, the concept was inclusion. I believe the terminology that we used was for respect for Dr. King, and they asked us to uh, fly the flag at half-staff that day, which we agreed to do. So we went, we got the flag and unfolded it and put it on the, put it on the lanyard and ran it up. And, and when you do this, you run it up to the top of the, to, of the flagpole and then lower it again to half staff slowly, you know, thinking about the individual whose death you're uh, um, commemorating. So around third period, I was called to the principal's office. And on my way down there, I, I bumped into John, and we went into the principal's office, and he told us that uh, what we had done was unauthorized, that the, the flag should be at full staff, not at half staff. And he asked us if we would go out and run it, run it up to the top of the flagpole. And we refused, uh, telling him that we felt that uh, Dr. King deserved this respect and that very soon he would be hearing that uh, it should be at half staff and he should just leave it there. And he uh, told us if we didn't do it, he would relieve us of flag, flag detail and assign other, other kids to do it, which was the outcome of it. Actually, it turned out that after us, the janitor started doing it because I guess they feared he was more dependable than the, than the school kids or maybe the other guys he asked to do it all told him they would have done the same thing as us. In any case, this, uh, you know, brought home to me very early on the difference between the way black people get treated. I mean, Dr. King's assa- uh, assassination was clearly a political assassination. And he was a, a great American leader and deserved the respect. And it, it, it was just shocking to me and remains shocking to me that he didn't... Uh, receive that respect. But that was the way things were 50 years ago uh, as we were struggling towards uh, racial integration. And what do you think what's the, What do you think it shows or sheds light on about the attitudes Americans had towards Vietnam? 
Um, with it, with the regard to Vietnam, the divisions in American society, the the the, the freedom movement exposed a massive rift in American society between those who were interested in integration, those who wanted to retain segregation. The same rift, I mean, it was almost exactly the same political people, almost exactly the same regions, the same pundits, everything, fell out on the opposite sides in Vietnam, those who favored uh, extending the war and continuing it, and those who wanted a withdrawal. So, so there was so a, a massive rift. Were there segregationists? in the country who wanted to end the war in Vietnam? Maybe, maybe William Fulbright, the uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, he might have been the only one. But for the most part, the uh, segregationists, Southerners, strong supporters of the military, uh, extremely anti-communist, highly conservative, were the ones who were in favor of continuing uh, the war in Vietnam. Probably it was also more in, in suburban areas, which became uh, the reservoirs or the catchment areas for white flight. So there definitely was, a, I think, a very strong correlation between uh, pro-war feeling and anti-integration. Now, let's get into a bit of the war in Vietnam, but you're going to talk first about the lead-up to Vietnam, which was the... French war in Vietnam after the after World War II, after the Korean War, right? So, yeah, essentially the French lost Vietnam in 1942 when the Japanese moved in. Okay, uh, the French weren't interned, but they certainly lost their status as a colonial overlord. They weren't interned because the actual French government at that time was the Vichy government which the Germans set up, which the Japanese considered an ally. And but if France, I'm sorry, if France had been, let's say France had not lost to Germany at this point, it was still a uh, fighting power, would they have been interned by the Japanese? Uh, it's very probable that had they resisted the Japanese, which they would have, as the Dutch and the British did, they would have uh, been over overrun and would have been abused in the same manner. Where were the, the Dutch, Dutch? Where were the Dutch? Well, the Dutch were in Indonesia, okay. and the British were in Singapore and, and in Malaya. And did they later get? They never got those colonies back. The Japanese took all of them. Um, the uh, the Dutch got back into Indonesia, and uh, Sukarno uh, declared independent around the time that India got their independence. Uh, the British cut back into Malaya and credit themselves with being the only Western power that effectively defeated a communist insurgency in Southeast Asia. And then they uh, eventually let Malaya go along with Singapore. Why do, you, why do you think that communism was attractive to the Southeast Asians? Just because it was a movement for nationalism? Is that what it was in Vietnam? Or uh, what was it two, two big factors to that. One is that a lot of the uh, Southeast Asian leaders either met in China and in, in, in the communist areas, or they met in the uh, 
Amsterdam or Paris or London. And because the left, and particularly the communists, I mean, Lenin wrote a book about anti-imperialism. So he was probably the figure most associated with the liberation there were others. Of the colonial era was areas. It, was it, I mean, weren't among the English there were, Orwell was against, um, I mean, he's not a political leader, but he's I a th- But he's figure. more, he's more of one of their contemporaries. Okay. And he probably, but, but he was so right wing. I mean, I don't think he. I don't think he was right wing. He was anti-capitalist also. Okay. But I don't think he would have been in the, in the same circles where he would have met these individuals. You know, I think he would have been more like a bourgeois student type. And uh, these guys, I mean, they, they all worked. I mean, if they did attend a university, they had to go straight to work in restaurants or, oh, or wherever Orwell they worked were. in a restaurant. Huh? Orwell worked in a restaurant. He oh, did he? His... All right. Maybe, maybe, you know, but London, I mean, Ho Chi Minh, those people weren't in London. They were in Paris. He was in Paris also. Maybe they knew each other. All right. I mean, we could go, we could look into that maybe in the future. What, um, so you have France basically beginning to lose its grip after World War II, and then the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese army is being trained up simultaneously by the Chinese. It, it was the Viet Minh, and it was all what over. Are the, what are the segments of the Vietnamese? All the Viet over. Minh and the Viet Cong? No, no, it was, it was all Viet Minh okay. at that point. Viet Minh currently translates into some of the Vietnamese Communist Party. And it was a, a nationwide movement, uh, but primarily Northerners for, for various uh, historical reasons. A lot more of the Northerners got involved in it than the Southerners. Presumably, the uh, ready access of the Chinese border and running over to China when, they, when things got too hot in Vietnam made it easier for the the northern cadres to develop do you think there's also like why did the one of the reasons the arabs never turned communist but the asians did is because the asians were bigger losers in the capitalist game than the arabs well i think islam is pretty uh significant in opposing opposing yeah in imposing communism communism after all is an atheistic uh uh atheistic ideology and, uh, I mean, even back then, it was very, I mean, but, you know, the Ba'ath Party, B-A uh, apostrophe A-T-H, uh, of Nasser, and of uh, the, the Syrian dictators of, of the, of the uh, Assads, they were socialists. Um, the Iraqi uh, Ba'ath Party was socialist. Well, you don't have to be... Atheist to be a socialist. Um, but in any case, let's get back to LBJ uh, and uh, Vietnam. Yeah, sure. So you're, we're not quite to there. You just explain a little bit about the battles in S- France. So, so France, after the uh, Second World War, the Viet Minh, who had been battling the Japanese, and to a lesser degree, the French. Winning or losing against the Japanese? Uh, it was probably kind of a standoff because the uh, 
the Japanese didn't really have the forces to subdue Vietnam. It's a big place. Um, it requires it requires a lot of manpower to subdue an area like that because the people are out in the countryside. They're not highly motivated. They want to do their farming or run their business. So you have to have a lot of soldiers there. On the ground. On the ground to control them. And the Japanese didn't really have the manpower. And the French did a little better. They were uh, collaborative with the Japanese, again, because of the Vichy government. So um, at the end of the war, the Viet Minh thought, well, you know, it's our, it's our country. We're in charge. The Japanese uh, had, had defeated, obviously, the Caucasian forces. And they had an ideology of, of uh, Asia for Asians. They pushed a co-prosperity sphere. So a lot of the Asians had a, a kind of a, the idea that, you know, we've had the whites in here long enough. It's our country we're taking over. So uh, they expected, after a war against dictatorship and foreign domination, that the Western, uh, the Western countries would live up to that and, and let them go. And that wasn't the case. The French pushed back in as quickly as they could. And the French were... They were... Explain to the audience what the French mentality was about Vietnam. And I don't know if it's all of Indochina. Were they just... All right, you know it's a place of rich natural resource. We need to be there, or we've always had it. Or you know, so, so the French, the, the French by then had had it for about ninety years. Um, they viewed all their colonial possessions by now as part of French civilization. They viewed themselves as a global, multiracial civilization. Um, the Indo-Chinese was a rich market, it was a rich agricultural area, an area of rich resource, natural resource production. And the French just saw it as uh, the way to reestablish the grandeur of France by dominating distant areas of the world. Uh, how the average soldier saw it, uh, one has to wonder. Uh, the French forces were very disparate. Uh, they had black Africans from Senegal and Equatorial Africa. They had Arabic people from Morocco and Algeria. Uh, the Foreign Legion had uh, former SS soldiers and former German Army soldiers. Um, and then there was uh, certain numbers of, of, of regular French soldiers. And between those different units, there was not necessarily good communication. Um, we can imagine the, the Germans and the Foreign Legion probably retained the racist attitudes that they had as German soldiers in the SS or in the Wehrmacht. And explain, explain to the people why would there be German soldiers because France was occupying Germany or why? Uh, probably they were more soldiers of fortune that, that the... The, the French have always had the Foreign Legion. It's always attracted a certain number of, of men from uh, Central Europe. And after the Second World War, there was probably a fair number of, of former German soldiers, probably a uh, higher proportion than one would expect from the SS, who probably wanted to get away, get out of the country. 
Right. So uh, the foreign legion gave them a place to get out, gave them a trade that they knew how to how to apply, and uh, eventually French citizenship. And France, France, at this point, is it right away when they come back in and reestablish their their rule? that the war breaks out, or is it a few years later that the war breaks out? Um, the Viet Minh had been accumulating equipment. Uh, they had been training uh, a military cadre with the Chinese and with their operations against the Japanese. So it pretty much broke out right away. But we, we have to recall that the Second World War had just ended. Um, the communists were fighting the uh, nationalists in China. Uh, by 1949, the communists had expelled the nationalists from China, which left a lot of surplus uh, military or former nationalist military hardware in China that they could uh, donate to the Vietnamese. Did they sell it or donate it? Probably a little of both. Um, the Russians had a lot of surplus war, mach war machinery that they got from Lend-Lease which they shipped to the Vietnamese. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of American artillery, American vehicles, American small arms floating around. So uh, presumably the other communist countries gave the Viet Minh access to that and of course all those weapons were compatible. You know, they could use the same ammunition had the same firing characteristics, so once they were trained on it, they knew how to, how to operate it, and they had a lot of it. Now, before you go into the details of how Vietnam wins, just explain to people maybe the difference between Vietnam's version of communism and the version of communism you would see in Russia or China. So, very quickly in the Cold War, the Americans developed the attitude of communism as this monolithic block over there that the, the Chinese, the Russians, the Poles, the Yugoslavs, the Vietnamese, everybody, the North Koreans, everybody had the same idea. And, you know, we see, like in North Korea, the almost immediate development of Juche communism, J U C H E. Uh, a very distinctively Korean variant of communism. We see in Europe uh, Marshal Tito in Yugoslavia developing a, a, a very distinctive maverick brand of communism in the Balkans. Um, some similar activities in the, in the Warsaw Pact states, but Russians clamped down on that. Uh, and and most importantly, we saw almost from the beginning a uh, sharp division between the Chinese and the Russian variants of communism. Uh, early on, right after the Second World War, since the Chinese were just uh, winning their revolution and uh, the PLA won over the nationalist Chinese in 1949. By 1951, they were engaged in a war with the United States and Korea. So they really didn't have a chance to uh, develop much of, of ideology. But as soon as they got out of Korea, they started, there was a, a division between Mao and the Russian leadership. Similarly, Ho Chi Minh 
and the political leaders in North Vietnam knew how to play the Chinese off the Russians. And, of course, they developed their own ideas based on Vietnamese history, uh, patriotic Vietnamese of the past, whom they could uh, co-opt into being communist uh, rulers. And, you know, the ideas that, that Ho Chi Minh and the other uh, Vietnamese communist leaders had about communism. I mean, they, they studied, they read the same books, so they had their own ideas. Yeah. So there, there was a, a separation almost from the beginning, even though it is true that the Vietnamese received a lot of aid from both the Chinese and the Russians. Uh, explain now how, basically, let's talk about how, what happened in the actual war, the tactical defeats of the French, and then we'll talk about what, how this, since it is a presidential profile, what, then we can go and kind of talk about how the different key presidential figures viewed what was going on as it was going on, and then we'll move in in the next episode into LBJ. So, so Vietnam is very big. I mean, it's, it's, it's long, it's wide, um, and, and I should have actually said French Indochina is very big. Uh, three countries, Vietnam, which was split in half, so at one point it was four countries, two Vietnams, Laos, and Cambodia all with distinctly different languages, Vietnamese being uh, Sino-Tibetan language with a lot of Chinese influence, uh, Laotian being uh, related to Thai with more Indian, uh, Western, uh, Chinese, Tibetan type influences. Um, and then the Khmers in Cambodia who had a totally different uh, historical and linguistic development. The people to them look very different from each other. And then there's a, 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 polyglot, a polyglot patchwork within the Indo-Chinese peninsula of, of the tribal peoples who lived there as the Lao, the Vietnamese, uh, were, were moving into those areas. And various tribes that came in by sea. You're talking about dialects. Or by land. No, but just, just whole distinct groups, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like the way the Indian tribes were. There might have been major Indian tribes like the Algonquins and the Iroquois, but then a bunch of little tribes uh, patchworked in around. Kind of like the Ch in China. So, yes, like, like in China. So there was a very complicated thing, which, of course, for the French worked very well because they could divide and conquer. But by the time uh, the late 1940s, the, the idea of nationalism, the idea of getting the French out was very strong. But the French had their supporters, the Catholics, the Vietnamese Catholics, were very supportive of France. Mm -hmm. The various uh, mountain uh, tribes were more supportive of the French because they felt that the Vietnamese rule would have been oppressive and they didn't care for the Vietnamese. The Lao and the Cambodians maybe were slightly more pro-French, again, because they were afraid of the Vietnamese on the one hand and the Chinese on the other hand. So it was, it was a complicated political situation. Now, the Viet Minh were able to uh, develop a large area in northeastern North Vietnam, towards the Chinese border, towards the South China Sea, where they were able to establish uh, a, a military state, almost like the FARC did mm -hmm. in Colombia, mm -hmm. 
uh, in the interior in the jungle regions. And the French stronghold was the Red River Valley that, that flows through Hanoi and Haiphong and up into the hinterlands uh, in North Vietnam. And eventually the French pretty much concentrated themselves and their forces and supporters in that Red River Valley. Uh, South Vietnam, uh, probably more because of the Catholics, perhaps because of, of the Chinese, uh, the Chinese exile communities, uh, Chinese overseas communities that lived there, never really, I mean, they eventually threw us out and threw the French out, but they were more pro-French. They were more Western-oriented. Did so, they participate in the war? More on our side, more okay. on the Western side. Okay. So the, uh, the big battles or the big war was fought around Hanoi, Haiphong, Red River Valley. And the French essentially fortified themselves in it. But because they had uh, allies in the hinterlands, they had, they had to protect the allies in Laos, particularly in Laos. The Viet Minh were also able to do kind of an end run along the western boundary and into Laos and uh, infiltrate into South Vietnam with armed forces. So the French felt they had to extend their zone of control over toward Laos, which led them to fortify Dien Bien Phu. Now, the, the French really fought the Vietnamese war poorly. They tried to uh, fight it the way they would fight in France, set fortified positions, uh, static boundaries, static borders, high dependence on roadways for transport. These all played into the hands of the Vietnamese, who, the Viet Minh, who were very good at ambushing, who were very good at tearing up the roads, who were very good at, at little unit ambushes, which could stall out long convoys. So uh, when the French general staff, who were in Saigon, decided they were going to invest their mobile forces. How far is Saigon from Hanoi? 900 miles. To in which direction? South? South. So when, when the French decided to invest their mobile forces in, in, in Dien Bien Phu mm -hmm. to protect Laos, uh, most of their forces, most of their forces were engaged in static garrison type duties in the Red River Valley. So they put their, the bulk of the forces whom they could move in the Dien Bien Phu area, and the Vietnamese trapped him in there. They, they cut him off from the roads. It was very mountainous terrain, so the roadways were easy to cut. A lot of bridges that the Vietnamese could dynamite, uh, water courses, they had big rivers they had to cross, and the Vietnamese could uh, knock out the road, knock out the bridge, uh, pick off the engineers so they couldn't rebuild it. So very quickly, the Vietnamese forces, or the French forces were trapped by the Vietnamese, and had to be resupplied by air. And they were in a long, like nine mile long valley, and they had three strong points. And because the Vietnamese controlled the heights, they could isolate the French strong points from each other. They also could control the airfield right, with artillery, just, just bombard the airfield, keep it all uh, pockmarked up. Uh, they were in close enough, and they, were, again, were on the heights, so they could shoot down the French aircraft trying to make landing approaches. So the French had to drop all the supplies in by parachute. Okay. 
So, you know, they were constantly fighting the Vietnamese when the parachute stuff came down. Who was going to get to it? How committed were the French to the war? At some point, did they say, let's cut our losses? Um, they, the, the Vietnamese actually had to defeat the French. I mean, the French never got to that point where uh, they said, you know, we're bleeding to death here. It was actually the defeat of their main force at Dien Bien Phu that brought them to the conference table in Geneva. In 1954. All right, so they get to the conference table in Geneva in 1954, and what's the decision? So they hammer out a decision that... Who's at the conference table? Um, essentially, the Vietnamese and the French. Okay. And there was some international supervision. Okay. We didn't talk to the Chinese then, so it wasn't then, but it was like India, you know, neutral countries like that to supervise. And they worked out an agreement. The United States had an observer there because we were interested. Uh, during the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, Nixon was very uh, pro-bombing and supporting the French. The Joint Chiefs of Staff... He was vice president interested. at the time. Nixon was vice president. Uh, this is as they're seeing the French, French rule in Vietnam come perilously close to the right, end. right. And Nixon is vice president. Nixon was vice president. He supported the Joint Chiefs who wanted to get in and bomb and support the French. And Nixon is, well, he's known for his um, foreign policy, but in this time he's pretty hawkish. Uh, Nixon was always very hawkish. I mean, he was a very effective naval officer. He uh, uh, separated from the Navy as a lieutenant commander um, in 05. Uh, which means he got promoted like four times. He served in uh, forward areas. He was not in a combat unit. He was a staff officer. But he served in, in forward areas where he saw what was going on. In the Pacific Theater. Right? In, in the Pacific Theater. Um, Eisenhower... President at the time. Yes. Took a very long time to, to make, an, make a decision, make an approach. But eventually... the decision was not to get engaged and Johnson uh, Johnson is at the time what Johnson was the uh, Senate majority leader okay. uh, and and Johnson's position was uh, not to get involved was if, a, and he was, was the one that matter. would have had to make the decision to lead towards uh, official war right well if if it had led to a de declaration of war it would have come in the Senate From so so Johnson had a pivotal role in it um, now wait, real quick, and and Truman. What what it was Truman watching as it was all going on? He was so Truman. He was so, Truman left office under a cloud. Mm -hmm. There were some uh, scandals involving his official family, mm -hmm. not cabinet level people, but uh, people in his executive office. Uh, real petty stuff, you know, freezers. Uh, fur coats, stuff like that. But they were embarrassing in the context of the times. And Truman really took a hit over the Korean War. And by now, by late 1951, 1950, a lot of the uh, fair deal innovations that Truman was coming up with. New Deal. Fair Deal. 
Which is what picking up on the New Deal. Which was pick well, like after after the Second World War, Truman picked up with the New Deal, and uh, refined it so that it would fit the returning troops. And he called it the Fair Deal. Yeah. And Eisenhower went even further. And Eisenhower Eisenhower's uh, institutionalized it. I wouldn't say that he particularly advanced it, but he definitely saw it as important against the communists. Because was Truman thinking of the communists when he implemented the Fair Deal? I don't think Truman was thinking of the communists at that point. I mean, uh, they didn't have the same menacing aspect until, well, maybe the Korean War. They really, we really started thinking. Uh, well, we fought with them in World War Two. We fought with them, and, and, and Truman was was colored by that experience. So he had some uh, Eisenhower, not so much, mm-hmm. and. And Eisenhower got us out of the Korean War. What were his views? Did he have personal views on communism? Eisenhower probably had the usual uh, Western military disdain for communism. Uh, Certainly he was against totalitarianism. Uh, MacArthur, who was his his boss and his mentor, was extremely anti-communist. But in comparison, we don't see it from Eisenhower. But we can and assume... Truman and MacArthur also had some run-ins. Yes. And Truman took a, let's say, took a more uh, lenient approach towards communism than MacArthur. Truman fought through the Second World War with, with uh, Stalin. I mean, Truman understood how, the important role that the Soviet Union played in defeating the, Germ- the Third Reich. Right. And, uh, but after his dealings with Stalin at Potsdam and successive dealings after that, he became much more strict. He wasn't at Yalta. This containment, uh, policy. No, he wasn't at Yalta. But Potsdam, and he wasn't happy with Stalin at Potsdam. Well, uh, big question was Poland, and obviously Poland is farther east than Germany, mm-hmm. and uh, Germany was essentially split. Uh, one third of the territory was given to Poland. Uh, of the remainder, one third was given to the Russians, and two thirds was kept by the British and the Americans. And uh, we were very concerned about the status of Poland. Did Stalin and Truman have a frosty personal relationship? It's hard to say. I mean, Stalin was a manipulator of the first degree. And he was very jovial and friendly and charming when he needed to be. And tough and mean and hard what he needed to be. He could switch it on and off. And he could switch it on and off and he could do he could do it to you all at both at the same time. LBJ did it but not at that level. Nobody did it at the level Stalin did. Uh, Stalin is truly one of the great uh, organizers in in history. Truman, I mean Truman was a much more formidable character than the contemporaries understood. But at the time, he was he was seen as a, as a mediocrity. And Eisenhower was actually a higher profile. 
Eisenhower had a massive profile. I mean, he was the commander of the European Theater of Operations. Never saw never saw warfare. Eisenhower Eisenhower never commanded in combat. And it was held against him, but not a lot. Uh, it probably Eisenhower held it against himself more. Um, there are veterans who felt as though Eisenhower didn't give them the kind of support they would have liked to have had. Certainly, you know, it's very famous how um, Patton thought Eisenhower wasn't aggressive enough. But, I mean, he got us into France, he got us into Italy, he got us into Africa, and when we defeated the Germans. When, so when we think about classic kind of Western American propaganda nearing McCarthyism, just anti, straight out of the book, anti-communist feeling and rhetoric. Nixon is the one that comes closest to that of these figures. Nixon is the top anti-communist. I mean, right from 1948, when he first went into Congress. Was was he able to, com did he communicate about it clearly and often or no? Yes, yes. Nixon, Nixon... Uh, and did he really a, believe had it? Had a very bourgeois background. His his uh, family were merchants. But they were poor. Uh, I didn't say they were successful merchants. Okay. Um, he he was he grew up in a religious home, so he had uh, there were a lot of reasons why he would have hated Bolshevism. The uh, class distinction, uh, its foreignness. The atheism of it. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why. What do you say? Class distinction when communism is the one that's eradicating classes. Theoretically. The 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 bourgeois don't like the idea of a classless society. Did Nixon? Um, what was Nixon? What was what were Nixon's communications and comportment with the working class? How how did he interact with the working class? So Nixon believed in the uh, forgotten man, the silent majority. Uh, Roosevelt was the paladin of the forgotten man, the guy who goes to work in the morning, does his job, works hard at his job, takes his paycheck home, uh, invests it, in the family, in the house, uh, you know, giving his wife presents, raising the kids. Uh, and Nixon Nixon picked right up on that. So Roosevelt was big into representing that person. Yes. But Nixon is on the other side of the political spectrum from Roosevelt. Well, Nixon wasn't that far on... Uh, you know, Roosevelt is a much more centrist figure than a leftist figure. And Nixon clearly was a centrist figure. I mean, a conservative, to be sure. But clearly a centrist. Nixon liked Roosevelt or no? Nixon mistrusted Roosevelt. Nixon disliked the rationing in the Second World War. Nixon disliked a big government, centralized government. Um, he was ambivalent about the imperial presidency. He liked the, the perquisites, uh, but he didn't like the, the theory of the imperial presidency. 
you know, he was a, he was a pretty standard small government Republican. But we also have to remember at that time, the progressive or liberal wing of the Republican Party was was viable and, and a, a significant part of the Republican Party. And LBJ is left of Roosevelt or right of Roosevelt? It's a really good question. Um, LBJ was more of a populist than a progressive. Uh, FDR saw himself as a progressive, a Wilsonian progressive. And progressives were for uh, constitutional uh, reforms, uh, direct uh, voting for senators, income tax, um, the nationalization of state militias into the National Guard, uh, very specific, you know, technocratic kind of stuff. Uh, Johnson was probably more of a populist, more like William Jennings Bryan, you know, uh, against big, uh, probably anti-monopolism is probably the, the biggest thing that they shared. But Johnson also was, was his, his imagination was captured by big projects like the uh, TVA or the Grand Coulee Dam. What's the TVA? Uh, Tennessee Valley Authority. Which is what? Which is a uh, rural electrification project. Okay. Pardon me on the on the Tennessee River where right. they built a series of dams and generated hydroelectricity in northern Alabama, northern Mississippi, Tennessee. Did did LBJ have any specific feelings about communism? He was probably against it. He was Southern. Uh, LBJ came from uh, his 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 life story was 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 uh, rather unusual. Uh, the they are big people. They were ranchers. They were relatively successful. You know, we always hear land rich, cash poor. Sure. Uh, but they were they were big wheels in in his home area, which is what which is around Austin. Austin. And, uh, you know, they were prominent people. They had a fairly big ranch. But something happened uh, with his father where his father fell out of favor with the, the courthouse gang. Right. And was reduced to manual labor. And so Lyndon had to go to a really third-rate college. You know, we think of San Marcos State. Who would have ever heard of it? If Lyndon Johnson hadn't was gone he there. was he a was he a good in school like was he good in school or was he mostly because Nixon we know was good in school John uh, Johnson was probably an adequate student but, but he was, was he was a big man skills. on campus it was for his sure. social skills that stand yeah. out yeah well he he's very very large individual uh, was he confident from the beginning yeah you know physical size confidence of of being relatively smart coming from a you know prominent part of the community i mean he had all those attributes that would give somebody a lot of self-confidence now when he got out of college of course the depression was beginning uh but he really got kind of a uh not a great job he ended up teaching in a in a, in a school for hispanic uh children and, of course, back then, the South was very racist, very class-conscious. Uh, 
So if, if, if Lyndon had really been in the top of his class or, you know, really a notable educator, he probably would have been teaching in a white school. But he was exposed to racism, teaching Hispanic children. And in, in a lot of ways, he, he rose to the occasion. In a lot of ways, he saw the unfairness and responded to it in, 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 a, in an active way of, of combating it. This was after his military service? This was before his military service. And his military service is kind of a joke. And what does he do? What is his military service? He's not known as a military man then. He he got he got a very high decoration and he wore the he wore the ribbon on his lapel, on his on his suit jacket, but it's 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 kind of a fraud, in that uh, after Pearl Harbor, a number of members of Congress by then, uh, Lyndon was already in the House of Representatives. Uh, he enlisted in the Navy, served as a naval flyer, went on some reconnaissance missions. Then went on a mission where they actually got shot at and gave it up and <laughs> went back to Washington. And uh, for a while he, he bragged about how it felt to get shot at. But uh, as other veterans started coming back with more serious with more serious stuff, he had to, he had to give that up. But he did he did have it might have been a distinguished service cross. I mean, and, and one other point. What about Kennedy? Because Kennedy is probably the other major figure. We got Eisenhower, Truman, LBJ, Nixon, Kennedy's. And what was Kennedy's? Was Kennedy on the scene? Was he? Were people thinking about Kennedy when the French War is ending? So, Kennedy had the most grueling, most up-close, most harrowing combat service of any of these leaders that we're talking about. George W. Bush was the only other, George H. W. Bush, excuse me, George H. W. Bush was the only one who had comparable experiences. In what war? Second World War. George H. W. Bush? Yeah. As a young man? Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of controversy about Kennedy's uh, service. I mean, I, I read something recently that said that any other officer who didn't have the sponsorship of a rich father would have been court-martialed for getting the boat sunk. Um, I was that that brought me back to look at the where where it was sunk and so forth, and it was an error, you know, it was a navigational error anybody could have made, and clearly Kennedy was in a combat zone, in a combat area, and was outgunned. I mean the idea that he would have been court-martialed for losing his boat. I think if you look at the actual encounter and you don't have the idea that, you know, it was John F. Kennedy, you can say, yeah, you know, he, he made an error. I mean, he might not have lost the boat if he had handled it better. But it was a combat encounter, and he handled it well. And what were his views on So Kennedy was the... the, the Quintessential Cold Warrior. Okay. That even more so know, than Nixon. Nixon was as avid and as courageous as Kennedy, but Kennedy was far more eloquent. All right. And Kennedy really thought that we had a superior system to communism. That. We had to protect these countries 
give them a chance to develop so that they would have a fighting chance right. against the communists and that they would eventually adapt our ways. And with regard to Vietnam, Ziem was a Catholic and Kennedy was a Catholic. And even though Kennedy was not a particularly religious person and broke a lot of the rules of the Catholic Church, um, there was a very strong identification with, with Ziem. Ziem? Because of the, the president of South Vietnam. South Vietnam. Because of the religion. All right, let's finish it up by going over um, the breaking of the Geneva Convention and how that sets up basically... What would become the War of Vietnam, which started in what year? So, uh, probably I would I would I would probably say sixty three. Okay. So, um, French were defeated. The Nguyen Phu in fifty four took about eighteen months. Uh, they settled uh, an agreement to liberate Indochina with a very loose association with the French. Uh, there was to be a plebiscite. In Vietnam, plebiscite is what uh, a popular vote okay. to establish a constitution, uh, unify the country, and form a government. Um, in in uh, Laos and Cambodia, they both established uh, principalities with Savama Fuma as the prince in uh, Laos, and um, I keep forgetting his name, Prince Sihanouk. Prince Sihanouk in, in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And Vietnam was to be a republic at, at, after Geneva was split at the 17th parallel into basically two ge uh, geographically equal parts, slightly more people in South Vietnam. And uh, they were to hold a plebiscite, unify the country, and form a government and, and carry on. Uh, President Ziem, Niengo Ziem, Roman Catholic, Western educated, uh, realized that the communists would win the plebiscite. You know, and it, they go back and forth. You know, communists would have cheated, no communists would have won. But in any case, he reneged on having the plebiscite and continued as president in, with South Vietnam as a separate country. And uh, the United States and other countries recognized the South Vietnamese government and uh, brought them into the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. This is around 56. CETO. Mid-50s. Mid-57, 56. Um, into the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, which is modeled after NATO. So, essentially, we had the same sort of relationship legally with South Vietnam as with West Germany or Holland or any of the European countries. So we had this 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 treaty obligation to, to defend them and kind of a relationship, whatever it was, with them. I mean, it's a very primitive country, just developing. Um, they didn't have a lot of stuff that they could sell us, although they were an important source of raw materials for the Japanese and the Chinese. So what does it take from 57 to 63 for the war to kick off? Did we have a military presence in right away? Basically, it was because the, the North Vietnamese were getting their act together. I mean, they had just founded the country. They had to develop. It, it, it took a while. You know, they were interested in unification, so they were trying to piece that together. And then they 
figured out by 58 it wasn't going to work that way. And they still had to figure out, you know, how do we stay independent from the Chinese? Uh, are we going to be neutral like the Yugoslavs? Or are we going to be uh, neutral like India, not aligned? Or are we going to be communists? If we're communists, who are we in favor of? Uh, and, and, and they had been fighting since the early 40s against the Japanese and the French. So they just had to, you know, fix stuff up and get the country back together. And were the French... Why is it that we begin to be the, the focused Western power on Vietnam and the French? I know they just lost the war, but... It would seem natural in a way that they would also keep a presence there or pay attention to any kind of communist So, So the French had an African empire that went from the Mediterranean to Central Africa. Tens of millions of people. Um, they had possessions in mandate, UN, or... League of Nations mandate possessions in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. uh, when they were expelled from Indochina, they were pretty much in trouble in Black Africa. Uh, they lost Senegal maybe two years, three years after uh, Vietnam, mm -hmm. Indochina. So they, you know, it was like the dominoes kept falling. You know, I mean, there really was kind of a domino effect against the French. They just didn't have enough Frenchmen to go into all these places and hold down all those and people. And why did we volunteer to help out? Uh, I, when I, I went to the University of, of Georgia for my graduate degree, and, and, and Dean Rusk was still alive. And... He used to he used to talk to us all about any graduate student. He would sit down with you, you know, and spend like the morning or the afternoon telling you about it. He he gave frequent public talks, and uh, his feeling was that you couldn't give in to the communists at any point. He talked about uh, an incident that he had as a young man when he was a diplomat in Berlin, Germany, in the interwar period. And he went rowing on one of the lakes in one of the parks in Berlin. And he <clears throat> came ashore and they got out and they had a picnic and took a walk and came back and the boat was gone. And he reported the boat being stolen and they gave him a ticket because he didn't lock up the boat. And in German law, if you don't lock something up, you're tempting the thief. Okay. And you're partially liable All right. if a theft occurs. So that was... Rusk's, that was how Rusk explained our position on Vietnam, that if we didn't support Vietnam, we were attempting the thief, thief being the Red Chinese. And Vietnam was critically important, critically important source of raw materials to the Japanese, and a bulwark against communism for Indonesia. Were we, were we content with just having South Vietnam be non-communist, or did we want North Vietnam back as capitalists? The, 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 the um, settlement at Panmunjom of dividing Korea mm -hmm. across the waste mm -hmm. 
was pretty much the uh, model. The model for the settlement in Vietnam. You know, Viet North Vietnam would be communist. South Vietnam would be pro-Western. Laos and Cambodia would be non-aligned but tilting west. Right. All right. All right. So we're gonna probably stop there. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Um, no, that was a good right, session. So we're going to be going in short. We're going to be going into LBJ and the run-up to how he begins the war and uh, factors regarding that. So okay. thank you for listening to Presidential Profiles. This is Philip. And Robert. Hope, the, uh, hope you listen to the next one as well.